You're listening to Earth Matters, produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the Kulin Nation and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. We're bringing you environmental and social justice stories. I'm Corey Green. This week on Earth Matters, we're talking to Sue Bolton, Socialist Alliance Councillor for Moorland, about whether human population is a major cause of environmental destruction. Hi, and welcome to the show. Can you please introduce yourself? Uh, my name is Sue Bolton. I'm a member of Socialist Alliance, and I'm also a local council in the Moorland Council. And today we're going to talk about uh, whether human population is a leading cause of environmental degradation. Do you think human population is out of control? Not necessarily, would be my answer, and I need to explain that a little bit. Now, I think obviously it's true that the Earth can't support an infinitely increasing population, but I think a lot of things get blamed on population that are not to do with population. For example, if we stopped all immigration to Australia tomorrow... Uh, and had zero population increase, we would still have the rapid destruction of the environment. And I think that is where the environmental destruction is connected to the actual economic system we're in, which is capitalism, which is based on a model of, of an infinitely expanding market. So it means that when people have what they need... You keep on developing new things that you convince people that they need. And so you um, you have all the different million varieties of whatever it is in the supermarket. You know, one's flavoured with apricots and another flavoured with this or that or whatever. It's you, All of these uh, products which have slightly, you know, some slight different aspect, but they're basically the same product. Um, you force people to buy a hundred of something when they need two of something because they're all in the same packet or you can't fix a uh, uh, just replace a light bulb in a in a car you have to replace the whole unit because it's a sealed beam um you know there's a, a huge wastage of resources as a result of built-in obsolescence and that contributes to climate change that whole um that whole system of production so what it means is capitalism is forcing people to buy more and more things they you know you can't repair things so you have to buy a whole new unit and chuck the whole old one away because it's not possible to be repaired the whole system is based on um a very destructive production model and there's a very interesting book by an environmentalist called Barry Commoner, which was written in the 70s. Um, so obviously it was before the discovery of mobile phones and iPads and all the rest of that. But he was comparing America, the average American worker's consumption in the 30s compared to the 70s. And in the 70s, in the environmental movement, there was a lot of discussion about overconsumption and people buying too many things and wasting things. But what he found was <clears throat> that the average American worker didn't actually buy more things or consume more things in the 70s compared to the 30s. 
I mean, they might have bought, bought the odd extra shirt or whatever, but basically they bought roughly the same number of shirts or, you know, whatever it was. The difference was that capitalism had changed the method of production, which had, was much more um, destructive, so that instead of uh, things being based on soaps, they were based on detergents. Instead of clothes being based on natural fibres, they were based on nylon. And all of these productive processes, which had changed in that intervening period, used up more resources in, in making those goods than was, were being used in those goods um, in the 1930s. And sure, we've got you know some new technology around now compared to even the 70s, but I think probably the same broad principle applies. We've, we've had a lot of changes in the productive processes and our system is, ba is one based on total waste and you can see that also with um, the proliferation of fast food which is all based on not washing dishes after you've eaten but actually throwing away um, throwing away the wrappings and containers that you are given the food in. So all of that is incredibly wasteful and it really requires a system change to be able to really reverse all of that in order to save the planet, not only in terms of climate change but also in terms of the, um, the using up of incredibly important resources and, and the creation of waste and all of that. Hmm. One thing that strikes me about what you're saying is that um, many of the modern products that you've listed are plastic when before they might have been um, natural fibres. Is it also um, a problem not just with the, you know, maybe the amount that's being produced but uh, the, the whole chain of the good, like um, whether or not it's biodegradable at the end? I think that's absolutely part of it. I think there are a lot of, a lot of different elements and I think, yeah, the whole, the plastic nature, the fact that things aren't um, biodegradable, and then the fact that, you know, I, I also, but I also think that even if things are biodegradable, I mean, just this huge waste of resources in, um, you know, in, a th in developing a throwaway culture, so that, um, yes, things might be biodegradable, and that's obviously better if they are, but that's also a huge waste, amount of resources which are wasted. And I remember um, an eco-socialist from Canada, a guy called Ian Angus, had a figure, which I don't remember the exact figure, I just remember the approximate figure. He was saying that within about 12 months of you know, most things being produced, something like 60% of resources are thrown away and that is this whole um, throwaway thing of things not being repairable and and being, you know, meant to be disposed of rather than um, kept for a long time or, or, or reused or whatever. And, like, that really is a shocking statistic and when it, when you look at things like mobile phones and so forth because, you know, these sorts of things are, um, you know, also being disposed of now. Um, and that also means a whole lot of um, rare earths or rare earth minerals that are used in the production of mobile phones. And these are often quite dangerous substances, 
you know, there's very limited supplies of them. Um, often the mining practices are very dangerous. And so to have something like that, it's just something which is quite precious, which there aren't, isn't much of in the world, to be just thrown away and to create toxic environment for workers who have to sort through the material or, or um, local communities that might live near where these things are disposed of. So there's a whole lot of different areas where um, I, I think it's really the productive processes and it often can seem like population is the problem, but I think um, for groups that do focus solely on population as a problem, I think they're ignoring the real source of the problem. And in a country like Australia, wealthy, you know, um, white country like Australia, um, often anti-population groups generally focus on immigration. So even if people don't start off from a racist position, the fact that they, they're not talking about permits to have babies and they're not talking about committing suicide themselves to reduce the population, it means they focus on immigration. And immigration in a country that's based on a white system like Australia is inevitably going to be racist, even if some of the individuals don't intend to come from a racist perspective. Hmm. And can we talk about the um, other side of the coin? Because it's not in every country that uh, people are over-consuming. Um, do you think that there are places in the world where people are starving because of too much population? Uh, there again, I don't think... I think it might look like that on the surface, but it's not necessarily the case. Um, if you look around the world where people are hungry... Um, often the hunger is a result of the way in which world trade operates. Um, often you find that um, wealthy countries have destroyed um, destroyed particular um, you know particular industries or particular agriculture in particular countries, or maybe have dumped um, certain products on those particular countries which has driven down the prices and forced farmers out of business. Um, often you find behind, I mean, yes, there's droughts, uh, natural phenomena, although not necessarily always natural. I mean, sometimes linked with climate change. Um, but sometimes, um, you know, there can be... Um, you know, poverty can force people to who are absolutely desperate to engage in practices in terms of land clearing and so forth, which can make their situation worse, ultimately. But the size of the population is also connected to things like poverty, the absence of a welfare system, the absence of um, non-judgmental and supportive family planning, um, and all of those sorts of things. So... The, often there are a range of things um, which are impacting on the situation in terms of the population. So I, I, I don't think you can point to an example of starvation being purely a result of a large population. I mean, I think if you look at the situation in developing countries, I think... You know, basically, these are countries which 
have suffered as a result of the whole colonialism. And now, while I know colonialism was a, you know, really happened a couple of hundred years ago, primarily, most developing countries are still suffering as a result of that. And you can even see it in Australia's relationships with countries which it's, um, you know, a, a country which was an Australian colony at one point, and that is Papua New Guinea, where Australia um, didn't really, they never really provided the system of public education, they never really provided any kind of infrastructure. They simply took the wealth and left a mess for people, the people of PNG to um, mop up. And if you look at all developing countries around the world, that is the situation. And, and then not only did the colonial countries take the wealth, but not really give anything in return, um, they're using the, you know, the rules of the World Trade Organization, etc., to um, w- manipulate world trade to the advantage of wealthy countries and against poor countries. And quite often where there's starvation, that can be the case. And then you can also get distortions in the market so that things like biofuels, for example, um, there's just one example, there are other examples where... Um, you know, um, some farmers started, um, you know, getting rid of their crops to invest in um, biofuels, i.e., um, well, quite often there were weeds which grew fast, which could be used as biofuel. And, you know, that's just farmers responding to the market. But that, that means then a shortage of food. I think this is something which happened in the Philippines, I think was one of the examples where I saw this happen. Um, so the market can be a really, um, is not a good method for distributing food or anything really. And I've heard that the part of Latin America that where um, that um, very fashionable and trendy grain comes from, quinoa, I think it's called, um, I think it's pronounced, um, in that particular country, that was a staple food and now because this is trendy in Western countries, the price of this food has gone up astronomically. And so the farmers who are growing it are making a killing, but the people who used to depend on it as their basic um, staple food can't afford it anymore. And so you've got to look at all of those pictures. Um, you know, population is quite, yeah, quite a You're listening to Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories. This week we're talking to Councillor Sue Bolton about whether human population is a major cause of environmental destruction. So this is, um, in your mind, uh, a matter of distribution of resources? In my mind, that's what it is. And I suspect that if we had a more just world... um, where people could um, had the freedom, the freedom uh, to live their lives in the way they wanted to live them, I suspect actually the population level would decrease um, because if you had a welfare system, for example, in um, especially developing countries, then there wouldn't be a need to have so many children. Whereas at the moment. Um, in developing countries where you don't have welfare, a welfare system, which is 
now being undermined massively in our country as well. Um, but there's some countries which have no welfare system, so that if you're in old age and can't care for yourself anymore, if you don't have children, you're just left to die. Um, if you've got a disability and don't have anyone to care for for you, um, you're left to die. Um, you, there's no unemployment benefits. There's no sickness benefits. There's no disability pension. There's no age pension. So in a society like that, your family is your welfare system. And so in, in societies like that, and especially where infant mortality is quite high, then people are forced to have a lot of children um, in order to have some form of welfare system to look after members of the family when they're not able to earn and produce anymore. And then in addition to that, there's a whole question of um, equitable relations, relations between men and women and access to contraception and family planning and and all of and, and women's status in society. So I think if when societies um, have uh, have a more just system, then what you find is the population rate will go down quite naturally, not as a result of population plans that say you can only have this many children, um, but it's um, it'll be on the basis of people not feeling forced to have so many children. Um, so, yeah, I'm saying that, you know, while population can't, you know, the world can't sustain an infinitely increasing population, um, that's, population is really uh, a symptom, maybe, of some of the problems rather than the cause of the problems. Say uh, Australia transitioned from a capitalist economy to a planned economy, uh, what differences would you see? Well, I think there's a whole lot of things which would need to change, and some of them wouldn't just cha- wouldn't be able to change totally overnight. So that, for example, some things which are, well, some things that I think would be straightforward would be, you know, transition to renewable energy and the full ab- employment of resources and research resources to, you know, carry out that sort of transition. I think the more complicated things to change would be things like, um, because they've also become connected with our lifestyle now, is um, trying to force um, enforce changes to this system of built-in obsolescence and, and a society that's based on throwing things away and, and the, and the um, consumer model of throwing things away, not... not um, utilising things to the end of their productive life. Um, I think, uh, and the whole thing of um, developing a public transport system so that you don't need cars or a private car anyway. Um, And because a lot of those things are connected to lifestyle and lifestyle has has evolved as as a result of the capitalist system, and I think particularly if you look at, say, something like transport, private transport, um, in the 1960s, most workers didn't own cars unless they you know, had some particularly fancy job. And so it meant that people lived their lives a lot more locally. Um, they went to the local schools, the local library. 
um, use local services, local doctors, etc. Whereas now, I think uh, since you know this is decades now of, of um, a private car um, being in you know almost every family or multiple nowadays multiple private cars being in many families. Uh, so it means that people can live their life all over the city and you know you might live in one suburb go to work the opposite side of town family and lives in the opposite side of town you might go to play sport or go to a gym and tuttle other part of town you might send your kids to a private or a selective school in a, another part of town and so therefore it means that you know when you're living your life in such a dispersed kind of way um it's much more difficult to get around by public transport and you're more likely to use a car. So it means that in if you had a different system, a socialist system, for example, you'd have to try and replace that so that people didn't feel they needed to buy a private car to get around. And I think you'd need a combination of um, a public mass transit system connected with um, public publicly owned taxis and and so forth, so that people didn't have to need to buy cars, um, which would then, if you, you know, developed um, a different model for our transport, then that would, where people didn't need to require cars, then that would also release a huge amount of land, especially in our cities, where you have these massive car parks, massive tollways and freeways and everything else. And you could actually divert some of that land to be for towards other purposes. So I guess in that little example about the transport, I guess I'm just sort of trying to convey the fact that some things are not necessarily simple and quick to resolve. Um, it'd, you'd have to really put a lot of complex work and a lot of investment, but it would be worthwhile investment to try and do this switch from um, a private car system to public transport system. Mm. So, I mean, what you're talking about is, is you know, at the moment we live in a sort of a centralised um, system and you're talking about decentralising. Do you think that's, um, you know, a really good strategy for meeting the needs of many people? Well, I think you can because I think you start to free up resources and because, I mean, sometimes people can get blamed, individuals, get blamed for the overconsumption and environmental destruction in our system. And while it's true that we all should all take personal responsibility and, yes, we should all be conscious of recycling and, and those individual consciousness-raising measures, I think, are important, at the end of the day, you need system change because when you walk into the supermarket... Um, the decision has already been made for you what you will have a choice of buying. Um, so you don't get to direct the manufacturers. The manufacturers tell you you've got the choice of buying A, B, C or D, uh, but not something that, you know, maybe not something that's not based on um, pesticide production or whatever. I mean, you don't, you don't, the choice is already made for you before you walk into that shop or supermarket or, or whatever. So we don't really have choice. It's only um, we've got the fictitious idea that we live in a society based on choice, but it's not real choice. So 
And I actually think human beings left to their own devices without being manipulated through advertising and so forth are infinitely creative and collective and social and so forth. But um, but I think, um, and also I think people's um, sense of alienation from production and alien, alienation from... Um, the products of their labour under capitalism. I mean, that sounds, sounds like a fancy concept and coming out of out of Marxism. But I think, you know, when people feel like they've got no control over their lives because the big corporations and the politicians make all the decisions that affect them and they don't have a chance to have a say over any of it. And so, so sometimes people do put um, all of their resources and creative powers into trying to create you know, a sort of haven at home with all the mod cons and all the gadgets and and so on and so forth. And so that is a bit of a basis of consumerism. But I think that's a product of people feeling like they don't have control over their lives and have an influence in the world, um, that then all that's left for people to do is to consume and try and develop a haven in their home. Whereas I think... um, if you started to have a society where people actually felt like they had a say in the world and, and what was going on around them, then I think you know people aren't dri- won't be driven as much by consumerism. So we're all influenced, um, me and you and everyone else, um, by the society that we grow up in. Um, we, and you know we can't just escape from that, but. Certainly, I think if we cha- if we change society, um, we've got a chance of both people living much more fulfilled lives, but also the environment not being um, destroyed um, in the way that it's being destroyed now, and us being able to start some of the repair process with the environment that's so desperately needed. Hmm. Um. As a local councillor, uh, you've got a you know a certain amount of power over infrastructure decisions that are made, uh, at least for the people of the um, Moorland Shire. What kind of obstacles do you come up against in, um, in your work? Well, I think you can come up against a lot of obstacles, actually, um, because what the interaction between various levels of government and then with private enterprise sort of can tie your hands but not entirely. And are are there similar obstacles to um, providing local services? I think there are and I think there's a real problem um, because this is another aspect of the population debate. Um, Some people say the increasing population is driving the developments and is the, the reason for overcrowded trains and trams and roads and so forth. I also think that's a bit of a furphy as well um, because I think one of the things that's happening is that, and I've seen this in Morland Council, where they say, oh, developers don't need to provide so many car parking places because developments are near... Um, public transport, which then drives a lot of residents mad because they know that they do need a car to get to work because they might live the other side of the city or whatever. Um, 
you know, people who live, work locally or work in the CBD where you've got a lot of public transport and you've got bike tracks and so forth going there. Um, most people who work in the CBD do go to work by public transport or cycling. But the vast bulk of workers don't work in the C- CBD and people might work in the outer suburbs. They might work in regional cities. They might have two or three part-time jobs that they jam together to try and create a decent standard of living and so that means they have to rush from part-time job to part-time job um, so there are all of these sorts of things that are having an impact And but councils and state government use the existence of public transport as an excuse to um, not provide certain services or amenities then we see the fact that governments are much more committed to spending on roads and tollways and freeways and so forth than they, they are in spending on public transport. So that at the same time that governments are building new developments, they're not actually increasing the number of childcare centres, of schools, of um, public transport at the same time. And in fact, the Victorian government in the 90s shut down something like 240, 250 schools across the state, including many schools in areas which really desperately need schools now, and especially in the inner city um, where there's now a baby boom, um, there's a crying crying out need for more schools and childcare centres, etc. But the land was all sold off to developers after the schools were shut, and now it's very, very difficult for governments to buy land at massively inflated prices to provide those amenities. But you could have foreseen that situation happening in the 90s. It was just crazy that that government, um, it was a Kennett government, stomped on people's heads to close all of these schools against the protests of parents and kids and the local communities. And ordinary people could see that there was going to be a need for those schools, but the politicians and the bureaucrats decided the schools needed to go. And so I think, you know, those sort of things happen all of the time where um, infrastructure is destroyed, like schools. Um, In the past, public transport infrastructure was destroyed all over Australia in order to... um, promote the private car and, and help out the big car companies. And so, for instance, in Victoria, Geelong, Ballarat, Bendigo, I think Horsham as well, all had tram systems which were all destroyed. And I know my home city of Brisbane had an tra- extensive tram system which was destroyed in order to support the car industry. Um, and so the infrastructure issues of overcrowding on public transport isn't so much connected to population increase but is connected to decades of governments wanting people to buy cars, wanting to, uh, having an ideological opposition to public transport and support for the private car industry. And so that, and that's the story behind a lot of our infrastructure in in Australia. It's um, 
the upgrading of that infrastructure to cope with population increase, where population increase does happen, it doesn't happen. And often that's because of private investment decisions, privatisation, um, a refusal to really seriously invest in infrastructure. So then ordinary people often perceive that as being too many people moving to the city and over being a burden on the infrastructure, but often it's because governments have refused to uh, increase that infrastructure. In some cases, they've sold it off to private enterprise that doesn't have the same commitment to maintaining in infrastructure. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network with Corey Green. That was Sue Bolton, Socialist Alliance Councillor for Moorland, discussing some of the issues with the population debate. You can find out more about Sue Bolton at suesmorelandreport.org. If you missed some of today's show, don't forget that our podcast can be downloaded at 3cr.org.au slash earthmatters. Earthmatters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous financial support and the dedicated people at the Community Radio Network for all their hard work in getting this program out to you. Earth Matters was produced in the studios at 3CR Radio in Fitzroy, Victoria, on the Kulin Nation. Our contact phone is 03-9419-8377 and our email is earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. That's all for today, but we'll be back again next week. Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia, on the Kulin Nation. For more information and to find out how you can support 3CR, go to 3cr.org.au.